My goodness. Well, I love all of you. I love IFCA, and I am so grateful for you because I know that today is, uh, this week is not a, it's not a new thing for us. We're not into new theology in IFCA, but it is a reaffirmation of where we are and where we are going and that we will not move. And so I am so grateful for all of you because I know you stand firm in your churches, and there is a continuous wave, an onslaught of change that is coming from within the culture as well as within the church to cause us to move, but we will not be moved. And so I'm thankful for all of you because it would be much more difficult if it was just all of us as little islands out there in an ocean of change. I'm going to ask you for this evening to take your Bibles and open them up to the uh, second epistle to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul's book to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And if you are able, I'd like you to stand for the reading of God's word. And I want to read the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This begins a reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Now I, Paul, myself plead with you by the gentleness and forbearance of Christ. I who am humbled when face to face with you, but courageous towards you when absent. But I beg that when I am present, I need not act so courageously with the confidence that I consider to daringly use against some who consider us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. As we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is fulfilled. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, we are so thankful for this fellowship, a gathering of like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ, representing churches and missions agencies and all kinds of Christian ministries that serve you in various ways, all focused on advancing the cause of Christ. Tonight, as we gather together, as we hear from you, from your word, we ask you to speak for your servants are listening. Remind us of your greatness. Remind us of our weakness. Remind us of our great enemy. Remind us of the power of the gospel. Remind us that you are coming again. Remind us of eternal things. And Lord, may we walk out of here this week as well as every single time that we meet together, remind us of how great our God is. And that one day you are coming again and you will set all of this right. But until then, help us to hold fast and to fight the good fight. It is in Christ Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. In the March 1934 Voice magazine, Pastor William McCarroll 
who was the IFCA president, wrote these words in an article that he entitled, Today's Crying Need. Today's crying need is aggressive fundamentalism. Believing that present-day uncertainty, doubt, and unbelief expressed from many pulpits and tolerated by many denominations warns us of fearful fruitage in the lives of coming generations and also that it is the primary cause of present-day doubts, confusion, and lack of spiritual conviction and standards, the independent fundamental churches of America follows a twofold course. First, it joyfully serves as shock troops, an advance guard that aggressively leads orthodox forces in attack on citadels of unbelief and infidelity that hide under the misnomer of modernism. Apostasy forces saved ones to occupy positions of either compromise, traitorous silence, sinful neutrality, or aggressive attack. Secondly, the IFCA encourages return of the true church to the constructive life and methods which characterize the apostolic church. The book of Acts offers much truth concerning the church's founding, its foundational doctrine, and also its foundational methods of operation. The church born at Pentecost triumphed over religious deadness, worldliness, unbelief, apostasy, persecution, and sin through prayer, constructive Bible teaching, evangelistic zeal, missionary passion, practical Christian stewardship, personal fullness of the spirits, and living that guarded against grieving the Holy Spirit. One of its most effective weapons was separation from apostasy as regards service, money, and name. The very name church signifies separation. Brothers and sisters, Dr. McCarroll was right. Not only about his day, but about ours as well. The world, even if it doesn't know it, needs IFCA. And the world needs a stronger IFCA church. The rumors about fundamentalism and dispensationalism being dead have been greatly exaggerated. You are all a testimony to this wonderful fact. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And we are all here to testify to the fact that we are not going to roll over and allow the enemy to steal and to kill and to destroy without a fight. We will continue to fight the good fights together. And as Dr. McCarroll wrote, the church has triumphed over the world 
through the spiritual weapons of prayer and Bible teaching, evangelistic zeal, missionary passion, Christian stewardship, and spirit-filled living. And that may sound old-fashioned to some churches, but it is biblical Christianity. This week, we're going to hear from speakers. They're going to encourage us. They're going to challenge us to continue to fight the good fights through these biblical means. This evening, as we kick off the 94th annual IFCA convention with the theme, Fight the Good Fight, Reclaiming Biblical Fundamentalism, I'd like to begin by asking the question, what does biblical fundamentalism look like? So as you have seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'd like to set the stage a bit. In this epistle, the Apostle Paul had his hands full with a church that was under attack. Some had given themselves over to sin. Others had applauded it. And then there were the false teachers who called themselves super apostles. We have false apostles among us today. They were trying hard to undermine Paul's apostolic authority and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was a church that should have known better. And yet we read that it had capitulated to the schemes of the evil one. And not only was it largely unable to discern its own sin, but it had also disengaged from being effective for Christ. In chapters 10 through 12, we find Paul there defending his apostolic authority. The enemy had brought a two-pronged attack upon the church in Corinth. Paul's authority and the gospel that he preached. What would Paul do? Paul wasn't concerned about his own reputation. Paul was concerned about the fact that God had called him as an apostle and he, by that authority, declared the word of God. I think that his response is instructive for the church today because we seek not only to define biblical fundamentalism, but as we seek to strengthen the church to fight the good fights. So I'd like to define for us tonight, from this passage, some aspects of biblical fundamentalism. First of all, I want you to notice in the first two verses that biblical fundamentalism responds with the virtue of Christ. Biblical fundamentalism, not cultural fundamentalism, responds with the virtues of Christ. Paul writes there in those first two verses, he says, I, Paul, myself plead with you by the gentleness and forbearance of Christ. Many of you, since you serve in ministry, understand what it feels like to be personally attacked as you serve the Lord. It hurts deeply. There's no denying that. And it's even made worse when the very people that you suffer and sacrifice for are the ones that perpetrated the attack. And as you can see in verse 1, Paul is made by these false teachers to look like a toothless lion. All roar, no bites. 
And instead of the church defending these attacks against their apostle, instead of them speaking on his behalf and defending him as a man of God, they were swayed into believing that these accusations were true. If you jump down to verse 10, you can see another quote that Paul shares. Here is a quote that the teachers were saying. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is weak and his words contemptible. Notice how Paul deals with the attacks of the enemy, though. Which, by the way, these false teachers are not believers. They are wolves amongst the sheep. Paul addresses the Corinthian believers not harshly, not brutally, but as a father would speak to his wayward child. He exhorts them with the virtues he learned from our Savior, gentleness and forbearance. Or your Bible might say meekness and patience. Some forms of fundamentalism have been marked by harshness, And an ugliness that is not Christ-like. We remember what our Lord said. Listen to his words. Matthew 20, 25 to 28. But Jesus called called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But... Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I remember a photo I saw several years ago of an infantryman in Iraq. He was outside of his camp after completing a sweep for weapons and IEDs. But what caught my eye in this particular photo was that this soldier, wearing his full armor, carrying his weapon, there was a little Iraqi boy looking up at him as he held his hand. A tiny little boy looking gently up at this man that stood there holding his hand. This soldier epitomized a warrior ready to fight, but who also tenderly interacted with this little boy. Brethren, to be gentle and to be patient with our immature brethren is not weakness. It is not faithfulness to blast, to destroy those for whose sake Christ died. That's not biblical fundamentalism. Paul loved Christ's church. He wasn't overbearing. He wasn't cruel with the sheep whom Christ loves. He corrects them, but he does so in a spirit that reflects the love, the patience, the gentleness, the meekness of our great shepherd. And as we see in the following verses, Gentleness or meekness doesn't mean we run from controversy. It doesn't mean we fail to face the wolves. Jesus didn't run, and neither can we. 
But there are some who will think that to be faithful to Christ, we must be bombastic. We must be overbearing. We must be hard-nosed. Some fundamentalists might be that way, ruling over their little kingdoms as little kings, but not biblical fundamentalists. Biblical fundamentalists want to reflect the virtues of our Savior, and so we will respond to criticism and the attacks of the enemy, even if they come from our brothers and sisters, we will respond with the virtues of of Christ. Secondly, biblical fundamentalism knows who the enemy is. We don't get confused about this issue. Again, look at verses 1 and 2. This reality emerges from what I just said about the virtues of Christ and how we have to face off with the enemy. The biblical fundamentalist knows who the enemy is, and it's not other Christians. I don't have a problem being called a fighting fundamentalist so long as it's stated that we are fighting Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Earlier in chapter 6, Paul spoke boldly and clearly about the need for Christians to separate from apostates. Those who say that they are unbelievers, he calls them lawless, in darkness, in harmony with Belial. They are also described as idolaters. Well, we need to be clear. Apostates are not believers. Apostates are not simply Christians who are not living holy lives presently. Apostates are those who have given themselves over to the evil one and are in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. They have as their goal the same thing as those who sought to entice Israel to blend into Gentile paganism. They became overcome by assimilation. They were swallowed so that the holy was replaced with compromise. We are not to cooperate with such people who are tools in the hand of the enemy. But Paul is careful. He is careful to distinguish between false teachers and wayward believers. Know that. I hear too many brothers and sisters throwing out the heresy title. He's a Methodist. Heretic. Well, you know what kind of her- uh, Methodist he is. You might be surprised. There's actually some good Methodists out there. Maybe not a lot, but there are good Methodists out there. They may not agree with everything. But we're talking about fundamentalism. We need to make sure we understand the difference. Paul is careful to distinguish. Sometimes it isn't always easy to tell the difference. But we need to make sure that we aren't throwing out the saints with the ain'ts. We need to make sure that we understand whether or not somebody is a believer. And guess what? That might require you to talk with them. 
If you were to read through chapters 10 through 12, you're going to see that Paul constantly is making a distinction between the beloved church of Jesus Christ that he is addressing and the false teachers. Let me point out a few of them in this chapter just so you can see it. Look at verse 10. For they say, look at verse 12, for we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Look at chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, him in the apostolic witness, or you received a different spirit, which you did not receive, or a different gospel which you did not accept, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself in no way inferior to the most eminent apostles. That's them. Verse 13. For such men, not all men, not just the ones that oppose us, but these specific men, such men, are false apostles. Again, Verse 20, and I'll stop here. For you bear it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. He's saying you brothers allow these false ones to abuse you. Now, fundamentalism has been marked by infighting that even calls into doubt a man's salvation when he doesn't agree with every jot and tittle of his own personal creed. This is not biblical, and this is not true fundamentalism. If you were to review the contributors of the fundamentals, if you were to go and get a copy of the fundamentals and look at all the articles written, you might be surprised that you would find congregationalists and Baptists and Anglicans and Presbyterians and Independents and Methodists and more. You would find men from many of these denominations were the foundational members of IFCA as well. The IFCA was established around a set of fundamental doctrines that allowed men from many denominations to come together as independent churchmen that agreed on the central tenets of our faith. We aren't saying that all those other doctrines aren't important. They are. But the biblical fundamentalists opposes apostasy as against the fundamentals of Christianity. Together, IFCA men and IFCA churches and IFCA member organizations opposed the true enemy of the church. Those who came along and wanted to identify themselves as Christians, but in fact they had forsaken the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. These apostate men, these apostate churches represented the lies and the damning heresies of our great enemy. And they called out the true church of Jesus Christ and called them to join them. And fundamentalists would not. Biblical fundamentalism sees that there is only one church. 
There is only one church, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. There is only one gospel. And that, brothers and sisters, is worth defending. That is worth fighting for. That is worth dying for. There are some who call themselves fundamentalists who want to return to the glory days of the enemy when the church is tattered and torn over silly cultural issues while the world is going to hell in a handbasket. May we hold tightly to our precious fundamentals. Just like Nehemiah, we hold fast with a sword strapped to our sides, ready to defend the faith. But never let us put down the trowel as we continue to build, as we continue to mobilize the church that our Savior Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel and the discipleship of our brethren. This is biblical fundamentalism. We know who the enemy is. And it is not one another. Number three. Biblical fundamentalism knows how to wage war. Look at verses three to five. After pushing off these false claims that have been made against him, the mockery that is saturating his words... He says in verses 3, 4, and 5, For though we walk in the flesh, yes, we are men of flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. In verse 3, Paul acknowledges our state. Yes, we are mere men and women. We are walking around in human bodies in a fallen world. But just because we are in this world does not mean we wage war according to the world's ways. Nehemiah had physical enemies. Enemies that threatened real physical harm. And that's why they had real swords. But our enemies are spiritual So we need to pick up our spiritual swords and we need to fight the spiritual battle. The gun and the knife can maim, they can wound, and they can even kill the human body. But heresy and apostate teachers are seeking much more. They're seeking to destroy the eternal soul through lies and deception. In L.A., we were prepared for those who might enter into our church with a gun or with a knife or some other threat. But our greatest enemy was those who would come in secretly as a false teacher or come in through human systems that seek to deconstruct the Christian faith or to justify and even celebrate wickedness as normative. You cannot stop apostasy with a gun, brethren. You cannot stop the humanistic agenda of our world with a wrought iron fence on your windows. You cannot prevent deconstructionism through a security system or a concealed weapon license. The demons can come right into your world through the radio, through the TV, through the internet, through the movies, through the music, through the billboards, through the school system, through the library books, and so much more. 
So how will we fight this tidal wave of wickedness? Commentator Simon Kistemacher writes this, Followers of Jesus Christ have been redeemed by Christ and set free from Satan's bondage. They fight the evil that the devil and his followers perpetrate. In opposing the forces of evil, God's soldiers must use his armaments, not those of Satan. The weapons that the church of Jesus Christ uses are not the world's weapons. We do not fight on the world's terms, nor do we engage in the world's way of fighting. Again, Kissmacher writes, Satan knows that his time is coming to an end. And so he uses every available weapon to resist defeat. In his arsenal, he has the weapons of deceit, lies, subterfuge, guile, intimidation, compulsion, and force. Followers of Jesus Christ, having been redeemed by Christ and set free from Satan's bondage, fight the evil that the devil and his followers perpetrate. In opposing the forces of evil, God's soldiers must use his armaments, not those of Satan. Among God's armaments are truth, honesty, integrity, justice, holiness, and faithfulness. In verses 4 and 5, Paul describes the way the enemy fights in this spiritual war. Our enemy sets up ideological and philosophical strongholds that seek to deceive and confuse the world, and if possible, the church. Paul calls them strongholds, speculations, and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. Are you hearing what Satan uses? It's not coming through the Teletubbies. We fight some of the silliest things when the most blatant, wicked things come directly at us and we ignore them. All of these words Paul uses speak of fortresses, speak of castles that seem, let me underline that word, seem impenetrable. And from those fortresses, the enemy shoots his flaming arrows of deceit. This would have been an interesting thing for the people in Corinth because Corinth itself had a castle fortress called the Acro-Corinth. From that castle fortress, it was a stronghold for defending the city and from which they could attack offensively. And Paul knew as he looked around at the spiritual fortresses, he knew where he needed to bring the fights. Paul wasn't bringing a knife to a gunfight. He wasn't responding where a fight didn't exist. Paul knew the times, and he brought the fight to engage the enemy. Paul was engaging the strongholds that were right in front of him, that the enemy had established. I am not exaggerating when I say, brothers and sisters, right now we are facing the destruction of our civilization. We are seeing the war against babies and against marriage and against the free proclamation of the gospel. 
And when biblical fundamentalists are engaged in fighting the good fight against the lies of the enemy, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, discipling believers, planting churches, and reaching the lost all over the world, we won't have time or energy to fight with one another. We pull down these strongholds of false ideologies, these doctrines that are the lies of the evil one, by proclaiming the truth. From our pulpits, yes, but not only from our pulpits. In the public square, in our homes, in our communities, everywhere and anywhere that we can. That is how Jesus did it. And that's how the apostles did it. And that's how biblical fundamentalists do it. Here's the fourth one. Biblical fundamentalism fights with the Lord's power. Notice verse 4 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. Divinely powerful. The New King James Version says, mighty in God. Show me a Christian who wages war by worldly means and methods, and I'll show you a Christian who doesn't truly believe in the power of God. They may say they do, but the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? And now I know I'm addressing members and delegates of the IFCA. But as you will hear from our other general session speakers, the church is in a woeful state in regard to our biblical and theological understanding. Here is the reality. People in our churches are not reading their Bibles as they should. They aren't studying them as deeply as they should. They aren't meditating on them deeply. They aren't spending significant time in prayer. And all of that amounts to spiritual anemia that has a grip on the church. And we must be honest, the IFCA has not escaped this ploy of the enemy. Where does the power of God lie? Is it in politics and getting the right man in office? Is it in making America a Christian nation again? Is it in charismatic signs and wonders? We have the answer in the word. This is what it says. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This means that we need to stop messing with the methods of this world and get back to truly the truly powerful weapon we've been given in the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the Gospel message. These things alone are powerful enough to destroy the world's fortresses of deception. Listen to the voice of a man who has gone before us. E.M. Bounds, a holy and godly man. Listen to his words of wisdom. The glory and efficiency of the gospel is staked on the men who proclaim it. 
When God declares that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him, he declares the necessity of men and his dependence on them as a channel through which to exert his power upon the world. This vital, urgent truth is one that this age of machinery is apt to forget. The forgetting of it is as baneful on the work of God as would be the striking of the sun from his sphere. Darkness, confusion, and death would ensue. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more, and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use. Men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Ghost does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but on men. He does not anoint plans, but men. Men of prayer. How powerful these two weapons are. The spirit and the sword. Brethren, let us pick them up again. Number five, biblical fundamentalism stands in the confidence of Christ. Look at verse five. As we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This man who wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit knew the power of the gospel personally. He had been a blasphemer. He had been a persecutor. But he was taken captive by Christ. The great Rabbi Saul could not stand against the power of God. Paul personally understood this. And so he proclaims this confidence in verse 5. We tear down the fortresses of the enemy. We take every thought captive to Christ. The spiritual warfare was against the tactics of the enemy, Satan. And Paul had absolute confidence in the power of God's truth to overcome the lies of the serpents. Paul describes an unending assault upon the devil's fortresses. He says in verse 5, if you read it as it's written in Greek, that we are tearing down speculations. We are taking every thought captive, using that present active participle. He signifies the continuous work of God against the enemy. Paul's language shows that we are not on the defensive, but on the offensive. The gospel, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.9, is not chained even if God's servants are. And when those fortresses of deception and lies are brought down by the gospel, those who were formerly held captive in them will be set free. They will be embraced by the Lord as his redeemed children. And the Corinthians understood this greatly because they've not only seen it with their own eyes, but their own testimonies spoke of the power of the gospel. 
Brothers and sisters, we look at the world and we get so dismayed. We look at the way that people are acting right now and we think there is no hope. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, where Paul wrote, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now I want to stop there because he does not say, so let's write them off. Let's leave the cities and let's go out into the countryside where it's safe and we have rolling green hills and, the, and we don't have to worry about our kids being in school and that the drug dealers aren't there with us. Let's find a place where it's safe, whether it's out in Idaho or it's out in Grand Rapids, Michigan, or it's out in Colorado Springs, or it's out in some place that doesn't exist, by the way. It doesn't exist because there's people there and people have sin. It doesn't exist. So why don't we understand that where there are sinners, when there is the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is hope. Look at the words, because he names the people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, but he doesn't stop there. Because as he's writing these words, he has people in mind, because he says this, listen, and such were some of you. But... You were washed. But you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So when you see those people, don't run from them, run to them. Firemen don't run from fires. Policemen don't run from gunshots. We run to them. And blood-bought, born-again Christians don't run from the places where sin is overflowing. We should be running to them. Because we have the only hope this world has. We have the only hope. The power of Jesus Christ is the gospel. The gates of hell will not overpower the church because the Lord Jesus Christ has already won our victory. The towers of deception will continue to fall as we go out and declare the word of God to the lost. The apostate denominations that existed in the early part of the 20th century, they continue to decline. They continue to die. You know why? Because they offer no hope. The current culture we live in has embraced death. It has embraced confusion. It has embraced delusion. And there isn't any hope in any of these deceptive fortresses either. Fundamentalism. True biblical fundamentalism needs to speak the word of God into this world. And we need to place our confidence in our God and in his written word. This is biblical fundamentalism. And this is how we fight. We could add more. 
But we at least need to begin with these five traits. Biblical fundamentalism responds with the virtues of Christ. It knows who the enemy is. It knows how to wage war. It fights with the Lord's power, not our own. And it stands in the confidence of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It was once true in America that the enemy of Christ and his church was largely hidden and would only lurk in the shadows and come out in the deepest, darkest places while most of America didn't see its ugly head. Our country enjoyed the heritage of our Christian foundations for decades, but not anymore. The enemy of our souls has come out from the shadows. He has become emboldened, and he is basking in the light of our world. I don't believe it'll be long until he begins to fully unleash his power against the church here as he has already done in so many places all over the world. Get some time to speak with our brother Lankantang from Manipur, where they've destroyed hundreds of churches, ransacked and destroyed Christians' homes and chased them out. They've done it all over the world. That is only one small example And I don't think it's going to be long until our enemy will turn. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to be afraid. This is our time. We have the most powerful message in the world, and our time is short as well. The world needs biblical, faithful churches, biblically faithful pastors. And that is why IFCA exists. We will not bow down. Until Jesus comes, until he comes, we will not bow down. So that when he comes, he finds us faithful. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I realize that words are easy to say. Words are easy to say because we are not presently in a battle. We are together in a safe place. We are amongst other Christians who believe what we believe. But these words are true no matter where we are. When we go back home to our part of your vineyard, these words are true when we go to places where there is open battle, where the fighting is very hot, these words are true. If we go back to our place where the deceiver has not yet risen fully and it looks like everything is good, these words are true. That there is a war and we are fighting it. Help us, Lord God, to remain strong and faithful. Remind us that in ourselves, we can do nothing. That we are weak. That our words, our intelligence, our education, our money, our organizations, 
All of these things are nothing. We cannot win this fight without you. We are a desperate people that you have called together, a ragtag, broken group who cannot do anything in our own strength. And so we beg you, we beseech you that you would help us. Give us your strength. Put your words in our mouth. Make us courageous. Help us to not be silent. Help us not to be sidelined. Help us not to think that somebody else will do it, but that it's our responsibility, that we will speak up, that we will share Christ, that we will take care of our responsibility. And Lord God, when you come, and we know you're coming again and you're coming soon, may you find us faithful so that we would hear those precious words we long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. We look for that day, Lord. Until then, help us to fight the good fight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.